Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Genesis chapter 44. I want to talk this morning about gospel application for reconciliation. We're tracking the life of Joseph. And as we walk into chapter 44 today and the chapters that follow, I want to begin by asking you a question. Have you ever had to serve as an intermediary between two people? Like maybe it was a, a, a hard situation and they needed an objective third party or maybe it was a broken relationship and you were kind of the one that was, you know, trying to buffer in between to see how we were going to work this out. You see, the Bible teaches that as Christians, we are compelled to labor for reconciliation between people because we've been reconciled to God. So being reconciled to God means that, and literally the word is, in 2 Corinthians 5, 14, we are controlled, we are compelled by the love of God because we believe that one died for all and that in him all who have died no longer live for themselves but for the one who died for them. That's what our lives are all about, Christians. And so as we come to Genesis today, I want you to see this. We're gonna walk through it if in quote-unquote real time of it bearing itself out. And that's what we've tried to do so far. But at the end of chapter 43, Joseph, who's in Egypt now, his brothers have returned a second time to buy grain. Remember, there's a famine in the land of Canaan and it has struck hard. People are dying from starvation and Jacob has learned there's grain for sale in Egypt. He sends his sons, they go down. Uh, Simeon has to stay because of the way that it transpires and the way Joseph tests them. And so they get ready to go back again and Joseph's told them, don't come back unless your youngest brother Benjamin's with you. And when Jacob says go, they say, we're not, we can't go unless you send Benjamin with us because like it won't be good. We love Simeon, we know he's still there, God bless him. You know, we're not going back for him kind of thing. But they finally get hungry enough and they send him back and Jacob sends Benjamin with them. So when they get back, they're seated at a huge feast that Joseph's throwing for them. They don't know who Joseph is at this point. But there's this huge feast and it gets really awkward at the end of chapter 43 because he serves each of the 10 brothers. But when he comes to to Benjamin, he gets five times the portion of all the other brothers. And everybody's like, what's going on with Benjamin here? I mean, this is nuts, right? And, And we can see that Joseph is expressing his love for them even before they know who he is. And as we look at the big picture of the stories, we kind of zoom out at a high view of it. We can see that reconciliation among Joseph's family seems to be working, but it's not complete yet. It's not complete yet. And this is why Joseph has to test them. And it's why his tests are so important. Because as we looked at last week, he is testing them to discern the truth of why they're there. Why are you here? Are you coming back to to seek vengeance on me again? Or to, to, to enact harm upon me? 
And so he tests them to discern truth because as we saw last week, truth is the first step to reconciliation. And we looked last week at, at four dangers that threaten to uh, subvert reconciliation. Because reconciliation that is true must be built on truth. Reconciliation that is true must be built on truth. And so we identified four dangers and we talked about how the primary way that it is subverted is when truth gets averted, either by a half-truth or by a lie or simply being neglected to be discerned. But once Joseph discerns the intent of his brothers to learn the truth about his family, and now he, he is the only one that's alive that still has not seen his father. And, and Jacob, his father, becomes the hinge point. And we'll see that in the story. Now, I want to remind you of, of a biblical perspective of reading and understanding what's transpiring in Genesis. Because of the gospel, here's what we know we can understand about Genesis. Joseph is a type of person for us. Who does he type for us? He is a type of Savior, a type of Jesus. So when we're reading the story, we can track Joseph and we can begin to understand things about Jesus because of what we see in Joseph. Doesn't mean he's perfect, okay? Doesn't mean that, that he never does anything wrong. That's not the point. But the way that God is using this passage of Scripture. And so when we know that the Father is still alive and reconciliation can be brought between Joseph and Jacob, when we see that, we know that's the end game here. Because what does sin do for us? Genesis 3, it separates us from the Father, right? Joseph has been separated from his father by the sins of his brothers. And true reconciliation will mean that they are reunited. Okay? And so he tests his brothers to bring his father to him because he had two dreams. This is how it practically gets carried out. First dream that he had 13, 14, 15 years ago was that his 10 brothers would bow before him. He's already shared that dream because it's already happened. They did that the first trip. But the second trip down, they realized that his father's still alive. And so because of that, his second dream remains unfulfilled. And Joseph knows God's plan is to fulfill his dreams. That's what's been driving all of this. Not just because he had a good dream, but because the way the dream is used by God in the text, it's the revealing of God's will. Okay, so God doesn't just promise that he's going to fulfill every one of your dreams. I'm not saying that. That's a whole other gospel that you shouldn't have anything to do with and you ought to run from it. Every time you, get, you sniff it and get near it, get away from it, okay? It's bad. All right, enough of that. It's a sermon for another day. Here's what I want you to see today. God reconciles people to himself through Jesus that Christ followers might live to labor for reconciliation to God and with one another. That Christ followers might live to labor for reconciliation to God and with one another. Friends, what I'm going to share with you today and walk you through is no doubt one of the most difficult messages that you'll ever have to entertain. Why? Because 100% of people in the room will be directly impacted by what we talk about today. I'm not asking you to trust me today. Okay, I'm asking you to trust the Lord 
what he wants to do and what he calls you to do in this message today. And I hope by faith you'll do just that. Let's go to Genesis chapter 44. I'm going to start by reading the first two verses, kind of set the stage. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. Let's stop there for a moment. He fills his sacks with grain. He's sending them back to their father in Canaan. He puts the money that they brought to buy the grain with back in their sacks. If you'll remember, he did that the first time and it freaked them out when they found it. Oh no, we're gonna be considered robbers, right? But they didn't know Joseph did it intentionally. And so the servant puts the money back in the sack. But he also takes the silver cup of Joseph, the cup of, that represents his position, and he puts it in Benjamin's sack. And he sends them back. Now, the, you can only imagine what the servant is thinking. The servant doesn't know these are his brothers. The servant doesn't have a clue what's going on. He's just doing what a servant does, what he gets told. And so he sends the brothers back to Canaan with their grain. Well, they haven't been gone very long. Joseph calls him in and says, Go get the brothers, stop them, have them drop their sacks and open it and check them. And if someone's got the silver cup, bring them all back to me. But you told me to put their money in the silver cup back in there, right? I mean, the servant's got to be a little confused in all of this as well. And so that's what he does. He catches up to them and he finds the cup and you can only imagine what this does to the brothers' hearts. Number one, they find the money But they've sworn, you can kill whoever's got the cup. We did not take the cup. Benjamin's got the cup. I mean, you can only imagine because every blessing that Joseph has bestowed upon them so far because of their unconfessed sin has heaped the coals of guilt and condemnation even heavier to burn hotter in them. And so they begin to return to Joseph's house and you can hear the argument. What are you doing, Benjamin? I knew it wasn't a great idea to bring him, you know. Brothers will be brothers. And in verse 16 of chapter 44, it begins to tell how when they got back, they appeared before Joseph and he begins to question them. And as he questions them, Judah immediately speaks up and begins to take the lead. Now, why is this important in the story? Well, as I mentioned last week, as God works them through the process of reconciliation, he will leave no stone unturned. Every person involved in the evil act against Joseph is being completely redeemed in the process of this. And that's why Reuben, who was the first brother who said, I don't think this is a a good idea. His blood's gonna be on our hands. But they did it anyway. When they sold him into slavery, he was the first one to speak. And then Simeon went into prison, right? Because Simeon was held until the brothers returned. There's only one character of the brothers who was named in the offense that has yet to be named in the redemption and that's Judah and Judah's the one who told his dad I'll take responsibility for Benjamin so when they get back in front of Joseph it's time to throw the gloves off it's time to come clean let's get down to business he's the one who's taken personal responsibility for the well-being but his role here 
is significant in the reconciliation process. You see, Judah's confession completes the knowledge that Joseph needs to accept their words. This, what he's about to tell them, is what Joseph needs to know they're telling me the truth. And it will be this confession that helps Joseph finally discern the truth on which the relationship can be reconciled in that. Well, we know Judah bears responsibility for Benjamin before his father. He gets back and he goes, you know, we'll all take responsibility. And you know, the brothers are like, wait, what? what? You're the one responsible here. But Joseph refuses. He says, no, the one who committed the offense, that's the only one that really needs to take responsibility for the wrong done. That strikes all 10 of them, right? Because they were all responsible for the offense committed against him. But he's testing them to see if they'll sell out another brother or will they choose to come clean and get honest and tell the truth? So Judah approaches the throne of Joseph and he begins to share his family's story. Joseph didn't ask for all of this. This has not come up in the conversation. But Judah just begins to throw off all the shackles and get clean in confession. He says, let me tell you what's going on with us. We sold our youngest brother into slavery 14, 15 years ago. Life's not been right since then. And this brother, Benjamin, that you are threatening to keep, he is the brother that's only left and he is the son that my father loves and if you take him you will kill our father because literally the text says his life is bound up in Benjamin because of his love for him okay he doesn't have any clue what he is telling Joseph here but Joseph knows exactly what's taking place And if Benjamin doesn't return, grief will kill his father. You see, the test that he imposed upon the brothers has forced them to a breaking point. And instead of trying to devise another evil plan, it came time to get real and ridiculously honest and tell the truth. Judah's confession tells Joseph what his father believed about Joseph's life because of the lie his brothers told, but he also tells him what his brothers believed, that he was dead. Nobody even knew he was still alive. Why would they have any reason to think that? There is a comprehensiveness to this confession that is so important for the process And Joseph is finding no joy in the testing of his brothers, but he must reach the truth through confession. Otherwise, he builds the relationship in any sense upon half-truths. But the confession is complete. Joseph learns all that he needs to know. And what Judah tells him that is so important, he says this, when we sat at that feast table and you ask us about our father, That's what triggered the confession that I'm bringing to you now. You see, it's interesting because that's the same point that Joseph is aiming at in the reconciliation. It was the separation of his father that would bring ultimately the full restoration and reconciliation with the brothers. It was the same thing that Joseph was aiming at in truth that he accomplished in discerning it. This is so critical for our lives, friends. Truth is so potent for us. And once he knows that is what his father and his brothers believe, he's satisfied. 
He, he understands. And so he wants to see no further grief put upon them. He's learned the truth and he can stand it no longer at the end of chapter 43. Don't miss the significance of this moment, nor what is taking place in the text that reveals to us what took place in Jesus Christ on the cross. Judah approaches the throne of one man to whom the whole world, the text has told us, has to come to be saved in the famine. Remind you of anybody? There was one man in the whole world that was saving the whole world if they would come to him in the famine. His name was Joseph. And in front of Joseph's throne, he makes a full confession of his sin and he cast himself at the mercy of Joseph. Friends, if you'll remember, Joseph is a type for us, a type meaning that it is a person in the Old Testament that points us to our hope in Jesus Christ. What we're seeing here among the brothers, specifically through the confession of Judah, is what it looks like to confess our sin before the only one to whom we can come who has any power to do anything about our sin, Jesus Christ. Don't miss the significance of this. I want you to see today that true reconciliation requires three gospel applications. Three gospel applications that we can glean from this to make application for ourselves. And here's the first one. We must apply the light of God's truth to sin's dark deception by confession. Apply the light of God's truth to sin's dark deception by confession. You see, God cannot work forgiving and cleansing power until sin's dark deception is exposed in us. And this is why truth is essential for reconciliation. It exposed, truth exposes and, and, and brings to bear the guilt and the shame that is upon us. But I'm telling you what, when Judah got done with that confession, all the brothers felt better. Why? Because now there were no more secrets. There were no more half-truths. There were no more lies. Whatever happened from here forward did not matter to them because at least their conscience was now clean. And you see, truth alleviates guilt by confession that brings us into honesty about our own wrongs and our own sin. And reconciliation, friends, can only begin when the light of truth illumines sin's stain in us. And confession is the shining of that light. Listen to what the Apostle John writes in his first letter. Chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, he says this. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin. He is faithful and just to cleanse us, to forgive us, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, friends, God forgives and cleanses when we confess our sins. Do you know how many people go before God and confess their sin and walk away uncleansed and unforgiven? 
none. None. He forgives and cleanses all who confess their sin. And why is that? Because confession casts the light of truth on sin's dark stain to bring forgiveness and cleansing. And it is that forgiveness and cleansing which becomes a catalyst for reconciliation. So let's look at the next step to reconciliation. Look with me at chapter 45. I'm going to read the first three verses. It tells us, Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud. Listen, Joseph has had it all boiling up in him too. And here it comes out. He wept so loud that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, Are you ready? Here's what he said. I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? You know what that question echoes to us today? Could God really love me enough to make this all right? Could he? Could it be? After so many years of Walking in darkness and learning how to manage the darkness so it doesn't overcome me. And just trying to, some days, muster up enough strength to get out of bed and put my feet on the floor. Could could God love me enough to remove that from me? Could God love me enough to do for me what I've just never been able to figure out? I mean, I feel like I get the source of it and I get to it and all of a sudden it springs up in ten other places. Is my father really alive? It's not that he doesn't know it. He just wants to affirm it. Friends, Joseph sends everyone out to make himself known to his brothers. And text says they couldn't respond. It's like they saw a dead man. You know why? Because they were looking at a dead man. (laughs) A man whom they believed in their hearts had been dead for a long time. And all of a sudden, he wasn't. Joseph began to explain to them all that had taken place with him. And this is how we know Joseph had forgiven his brothers before he ever saw them. Look with me in chapter 45 and verse 8. Chapter 45 and verse 8. Joseph says to his brothers, here's the way he explains everything that has been evil against him in his life to the people that perpetrated the evil. So it was not you who sent me here but God. Do you know what I'm asking you? Today, and I'll finish next week, I'm asking you not just to look at every blessing in your life, but to understand every offense and evil that's ever been perpetrated against you in light of God's glory and God's plan for you. I'm not telling you God did it to you because God's not responsible for the sin of Joseph's brothers committed against him. God does not sin, nor is sin in him. But I am laboring today for every evil perpetrated against you for you to bring it to the front of your mind 
and to give it to God today. Now that we all know where we're headed, let's keep walking there. All the wrong and the harm done to him by his brothers, Joseph considered paid. It was taken care of. It was done. And therefore, they had been forgiven. Why? Not because Joseph is a great guy and he's not a type of Jesus because he was a perfect man or any of that thing, but because he understood his life was in God's hand and he trusted God's plan. That's how Joseph forgave his brothers. His life was in God's hand and he trusted God's plan. Joseph forgives his brothers, listen to me, by the payment of God's plan for his life. The payment of God's plan. Because of the confession and Joseph's forgiveness, now reconciliation can be pursued. You see, reconciliation depends on the confession of and the forgiveness for wrongs atoned. And Joseph trusted God's plan as a payment for the brothers' wrongs so that he could forgive them. Long before they ever showed up in front of him, long before this ever came back up to him as a surprise, even to Joseph when they first appeared, he had already forgiven them. He had already forgiven them. And that brings us to the second gospel application for true reconciliation. We have to stand ready to apply God's atonement in Jesus to forgive others' wrongs against you. We apply God's atonement in Jesus to forgive other people's wrongs against you. Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I'm telling you that Christians are called, yea, compelled, controlled by love to do this. Why? Because this is the way we've been loved. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I'm telling you this is the way God loves you. And God wants to bring you fully reconciled to him by that atonement today. Friends, reconciliation depends on forgiveness that only comes by atonement. Here's a lesson we all need to understand. Are you ready? I want you to write this one down. Write it on your hand. Write it on your forehead. That's where a lot of people need to see it today. Debt never just disappears. I know you thought it was going to be something hyper-spiritual, didn't you? No, debt never just goes away. Now, if you're the debtor, you can hope it will, but it doesn't. If you're the lender, you can not want it to, but sometimes you have to eat it, right? Somebody always pays the debt, period. And if we take the financial aspect of this and apply it to the spiritual reality of this, the principle remains the same. Somebody always pays the debt. Debt never just disappears. Somebody's always left with the bill. And so it is with our debt of sin before God. Sin left unatoned is a debt unpaid to God. That's what the gospel tells us, friends. And guilt or offense is only removed when sin is cleansed because atonement has been applied. So if you're the guilty one or if you're the one who the guilt or or who the offense was perpetrated against, the sin of it can only be removed and cleansed because an atonement has been applied. Listen, 
Every person in the room is guilty of sin. There are none that are righteous, not even one. No one who seeks God, Romans tells us. You're guilty before God. The question we must first deal with, who's going to pay your sin debt for God? You can't. That's the next thing we learned in the gospel. There isn't any manner of accumulation or cumulative impact that you can muster up and offer to God that God says that's worthy of the debt that you've offended me with. Outside or within yourself rather, there is no way to pay your debt to God. And God demands it. He's not sweeping any of it under the rug. That's what Jesus did for you, friends. That's why the gospel is so, so potent. And friends, listen, it is a frustrating mistake to think that forgiveness means forgetting. It's a very frustrating mistake to think. I've counseled, I, I don't know, dozens of people at the very least through the years who thought because they forgave, they would just forget. And what they learned is they haven't really forgiven, they've just tried to forget it. And that's a very frustrating substitution, but it's also a gospel aversion. That is not a gospel application. It's an aversion to the gospel. Why? Because just simply trying to forget a debt will never remove the debt. It's got to be paid. And forgiveness means cleansing, not forgetting. It means the debt gets paid, not forgotten. Why? Because there is an atonement that is sufficient that gets applied to the sin's debt. Friends, when you short-circuit forgiveness by claiming forgetfulness that's unatoned, you can be sure of this. The forgetfulness will not last, and when it returns, it will return with a hotter heat of bitterness, envy, anger, whatever it was the first time, and more intensity and more deeply so and more controlling over you than when it first or last appeared. Don't short-circuit forgiveness by claiming forgetfulness. And when you choose to try and forget without applying any atonement, you cheapen the value of forgiveness and forsake cleansing that it brings. In other words, you'll tell somebody, oh, it's okay, I've forgotten about that, but you haven't. In your own mind and heart, you hold it against them. And you hate them even more, you hate them more deeply, and you can't stand the look, you can't stand the sound of their name. You don't like anything about them. Why? Because you haven't forgotten or forgiven them, you've just tried to forget about it. And that's easier for us. I don't want to deal with you anymore. Why? Because I don't love you enough to forgive you. I'm just going to try to forget you. God loves you too much to forget you. He loves you enough to forgive you. Atonement that brings forgiveness means this. Are you ready? You also need to hear this. The offense, if and when remembered, and it will be, but if and when it is remembered, is cleansed. And so it's no longer on the books. It's not counted anymore. You, you can hear their name. You can see their face. You can run into them in the mall or in the store, wherever you happen to be. Something can be told about them, and you know what? I don't feel it anymore. I, I, I'm not angry, I'm not bitter. Why? 
because I've forgiven them. But God, that's the way Joseph said it, but God. You see, atonement for sin, friends, comes only by one way. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross of Jesus Christ. God did not just forget your sin. He paid your sin debt. Jesus was put forth by God as a propitiation for your sin. That word means payment. The only way to truly forgive and be cleansed is to trust God's plan in Jesus as a payment for your wrongs. And here's the really hard part. And for the wrongs done against you. The wrongs done against you. But friends, this is the glory of the cross. It's the power of the gospel. Whether it's a person that appears before you or someone who is past and never to be seen by you again. Do you hear me? Listen, when God who is, whose kingdom is eternal, he handles all things. That's the glory of this. Atonement for any wrong can be applied for forgiveness and cleansing when we rest our life in God's hand and trust his plan. And friends, let me ask you a question, specifically Christian. If God is satisfied with Jesus' sacrifice for all sin, how can we act like it's not enough for us and remain in unforgiveness? How? We can't. We can't. Jesus says, That the one who won't forgive others denies God's forgiveness of them. That's how important this is for our lives. You see, we live in a world that is driven by offense. The world says, you ought to be offended, (laughs) right? It says, take offense. And not only does it take offense, but it says everybody ought to be offended by something. And then the culture demands, don't just be offended. You need to rage against it. I saw a video come across uh, uh, social media this week that was some woman talking about what she's offended by in the world today. And the more she talked, the angrier she got. She's bouncing off the trees and off the buildings and she just gets so mad. And just, I'm going to tell you, friends, it doesn't matter how angry you rage against the offense done against you. It will not erase it there is nothing you can do to get rid of it no matter how mad you get no matter how much hurt you inflict on somebody else it will never remove it from you it only compounds it and multiplies it in you the world is lying to you about taking offense being offended and raging against the wrongs in the world you will not do anything about it by doing so But praise be to God, we worship and we source our life in an atonement-empowering, forgiving God. When we take or hold offense at someone else's wrong against us and remain unforgiving towards them, we deny God's forgiveness of us. That's why Paul says in Colossians that we, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And you see, forgiving other people doesn't mean they get off free. It doesn't mean that the debt owed to you because the wrong they did against you goes unpaid and you just gotta suck it up and take it. That's not what happens here in the gospel, friends. Here's what happens in the gospel. Your offense goes paid because you apply it to Christ on the cross. I'll not be offended because he died for my offense. I will not rage against the world in their sinful practices and their offense. Why? Because Christ died that I don't have to carry that burden. That's 
the Christ follower applies Jesus' atoning sacrifice as payment not only for our sin debt against God, but for other people's sin debt against us. By faith, the Christ follower applies the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which is sufficient for us to be fully, perfectly reconciled to God. We apply it to the offenses of other people against us so we can offer them forgiveness as well. Now let's keep walking because we're looking at reconciliation. When Pharaoh hears Joseph's family has come, his love for Joseph spills over in blessing. I mean, just gets ridiculous. He promises them land. He says, we'll give them everything they need. You go get them. And here, here's food. Here's carriages. Don't even make them walk, man. Here's carriages. Ride back. So they get back to Canaan. They tell Jacob that Joseph is alive. It almost kills the man with joy. It says his heart became numb so he couldn't believe it. But then quickly he thought, wait, 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 wait. This is the son I thought was dead. I've got to go see this for myself. You know how he gets from Canaan back to Egypt? In a carriage. That's right. They, they travel from Canaan back to Egypt with an Egyptian royal transportation and all the provision you could imagine. I mean, it was so ridiculously crazy you would have thought Pharaoh himself was traveling for the way that they were blessed to return to this land. And along the way, Along the way, God speaks to Jacob, but he doesn't call him Jacob, he calls him Israel. You know why he called him Israel? Because that's God's covenant name with Jacob. And he said, Israel, ooh, hadn't heard that one in a while, God. He said, this is my plan. This is the way I'm gonna make you into a great nation. This is the way I'm going to fulfill the promised covenant that I've given to you and to your fathers. From that point, Jacob knew it. You see, God's plan to multiply his people moves forward. How? By the work of one man. By the work of one man. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. You know how we know that? Because a man by the name of Joseph in Genesis tells us of the one who will come and complete the plan that, Joseph, or that God is teaching us through Joseph. And here's the third application I want you to see today. You have to apply God's blessing of reconciliation as your reward over sin's brokenness, over sin's hurt, and over sin's separation. You see, reconciliation is the reward, friends, when we're brought back to God, when we're brought back with one another. We see reconciliation begin for Joseph and his family, but the process continues as the relationships are being rebuilt. Now, let me make a spiritual distinction for us here. In salvation... When we confess our sins and are forgiven and cleansed and we are, as the Bible says, justified before God, immediately we are perfectly reconciled knowing that that is our promise by the Holy Spirit inhabiting us that one day we will be eternally reconciled with God at home in heaven. Among people, reconciliation doesn't happen that perfectly or immediately. Why? We're walking through real time. That's what we see in Genesis. That's why this is so valuable for us. Joseph and his brothers and his dad, they still got some work to do on the relationships. Why? Because the relationship they had wasn't built on truth. It was built on lies and deception. They got to rebuild it on truth. And that's what we see. You see, learning to enjoy the blessing of reconciliation means that we receive 
as God's reward, not demanding that all the wrongs are individually repaid, but that reconciliation is the reward with God. And and learning to enjoy this means that we must acknowledge two important realities. This is where the rubber meets the road for us, friends. I want to be gracious and loving in the way I share this with you, but I'm inviting you to apply this to your own life. I want you to know that. The first important reality of reconciliation is this, between people. Reconciliation does not always mean that we are reunited to the relationship the way it was prior to the offense. While forgiveness is required for reconciliation, it does not mean that reconciliation will always be completed in life. Forgiveness is required for reconciliation. Reconciliation is not required for forgiveness. And that's what we try to apply sometimes. If you make everything right, I'll forgive you. No, 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 no. You got the order flipped around. You forgive and then you receive the reconciliation as the reward. You see, we must learn in this life In a broken, imperfect world, there are things in and about this life that don't all get worked out in this life. This is where many of our troubles sit. And we must acknowledge that while forgiveness should always be given, a reconciliation between people is not always possible. Even with Joseph and his brothers, they are reunited, but reconciliation is not complete. We'll see that in chapter 50. Sometimes it's because one of the persons is no longer present. You know, I've had people well into their 70s tell me before, I've lived my whole life because of something my mother or father said to me. And they're gone now and I can never make it right. That's not true. That's not true. If someone harmed you, hurt you or did anything to you, said anything to you, I'm beckoning upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you will apply it by faith and trust in Jesus, even the words that cut so deeply that drive our life in certain directions, even those can be forgiven. Why is that important? Because some of you have been separated and you'll never be brought back together with the person that needs your forgiveness. But you can forgive. You can be cleansed. You can be released. I'm inviting you to that today. You say, how? By applying it to Christ on the cross. I can't do it. God will do it. And then sometimes... It's because one or more of the parties are not willing, even when forgiveness is applied, to see full reconciliation come about. And listen to me, friends. Don't try to play God here. You can't control other people. You have to take care of you and take care of your responsibility before God. And you've got to leave the rest in God's hand where his plan gets carried out. You say, how do you know this? Well, Joseph shows us that reconciliation is his highest hope, but it's not his highest glory. This is a distinction that's important. Reconciliation is Joseph's highest hope, but it's not his highest glory. That's why he puts his brothers to the test, because his highest glory is to live in God's plan for his life, and God is carrying out that plan for his life. 
But if in some way he's got to bend the rules, he's got to accept some lesser truth, if, if, if his aim is not reconciled at any cost. The cost has already been determined and it's been paid. Joseph's highest glory, his work is to reconcile only by God's plan. And what is God's plan? That the offense that caused the separation and only the reconciliation will come when it is paid in Jesus. That is God's highest glory. Any other plan that you sub, uh, uh, insert and try to substitute gospel reconciliation with will only fail and cause greater harm and injury. It's our work. All offense, all sin is only atoned by Jesus. And until you trust him for the hurt that was perpetrated against you, and until you walk by faith in his word, you will not be released from the guilt and the shame and the deception and damage and destruction it's doing in your life. But I'm telling you, you can turn in an instant, friend. God can redeem things faster. God can redeem things innumerably millions of times quicker than they took to carry out. What takes us a lifetime to accomplish, God, blink of an eye, it's done. But you've got to trust. You've got to trust. You see, reconciliation means the offense of wrong is forgiven and some or the possibility for a new relationship has been restored. But it does not mean there will be a fast resolution or any return to the way the relationship was before the offense. The relationship needs to be rebuilt because before it was built on some half-truth, lie, or deception. That's what called the caused the infraction and the offense. It needs to be rebuilt on truth. And learning to follow God in reconciliation may mean let it go more than contort your life to try and make it happen. The second important reality is this. Just because reconciliation is not complete in this life between people does not mean that God's blessing is any less. Sometimes you just have to bless people and let them go. Doesn't mean the offense remains on you. And I see countless people who run themselves crazy trying to make everything right the way it used to be. And they're killing themselves. And that's not God's plan. You, you can't determine what God's plan for someone else is. God's blessing rests on every relationship in your life only when you trust His plan as your highest glory above your or anyone else's desire. Surely don't let someone else put that on you. God reconciles people to himself through Jesus that Christ followers might live to labor for reconciliation to God and with one another. Let's pray. Friends, I don't want you to think this morning two things. Number one, that you don't have any work to do because of this. Or number two, you're the only one in the room that has work to do because of this. We all have work to do because of the gospel. As a matter of fact, it is the power for our work. What I'm inviting you to do today is to consider the offense, the wrong that maybe you perpetrated against someone else. And you say, I don't even know where they're at. I don't know who they are. I don't know how to find them. 
Okay. Have you confessed it to God and said, God, I know I was wrong in this situation, in this way, and you get as specific in your confession as the Spirit gets in your conscience. You confess it to Him and you tell God, God, if I ever encounter this person again, I will make this same confession to them and ask their forgiveness. Secondly, if the offense was done against you, whether the person is still alive or not, you trust God by asking God, Lord, by your plan as my highest glory, grant to me the grace to forgive them and be cleansed of this to carry it no more. And every time it comes back, you keep trusting. You keep trusting. You keep trusting. And if you ever have the chance to speak to them, you share with them what you said to God. And you tell me that God won't cleanse you. I tell you, He absolutely will. That's a personal testimony.